Uh, yes, we've got a Bible reading. We're going to look at one verse of chapter 6, but I want to read chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Last night I said what I'd do, would, the first session was, uh, we'll open up chapter 1 a little bit, and the fourth session will open up chapter 2. But the two middle sessions, I wanted to delve into some of the cultural pressures that we face as Christians, based out of some of the stuff I wrote in my book, that um, I was talking to Paul and Simon about how I would put these sessions together. So we'd go the Bible stuff in chapter 1 and chapter 4 and then in the middle drill down into some of the issues that we face culturally, that Christians have faced down the years, that uh, people ask about and I get asked to speak a lot about how do we respond to these issues and why do Christians hold those perspectives on these issues. Uh, you may not all be Christian here today, I don't know. Um, you may, and you all come from different backgrounds. Uh, but we're going to look at the issue of um, your personal autonomy, who you are as a person. Because, you know something, you swim in the water of uh, you are your own person. You swim in that water. And although we might think that's what uh, the world out there that belongs to this age believes, uh, we all swim in the same water at some level, and we all imbibe of that at one level as well. And there's the story of the two... Uh, Goldfish swimming around the goldfish bowl and Grandpa Goldfish swims past and goes, Hey boys, how's the water? And they go, What's water? Because you're swimming in it. Right? It's just what you are. And that's uh, the air we breathe. And pastorally, over 20 odd years, 30 years of ministry, what I've experienced is that where people train wreck their faith on issues, the key issue is always, I want to do what I want because I'm an autonomous person. Now, we are autonomous, there's agency in human beings and we've got to be careful how we... But it's almost like the default is, I decide what I want to do first. And then if what other people think I should do or what the church thinks I should do lines up with that, well and good, if not, it doesn't. And we sang it today almost unthinkingly, I'm ready to do your will, O Master, right? That is almost like you know, a red rag to a bull in our culture. You mean you're going to allow someone else to decide how you live your life. So what we'll do, I'm going to pray and then we'll, look, we'll read chapter 6. I'm going to look at one verse and then sort of mine down into that as to why that's a pressure point in our culture, how it affects us as Christians, and how we can respond in the water we're swimming in. We're going to do that this session and we'll look at another issue this afternoon and then tomorrow morning we'll do chapter two we'll do a bit more of an expository teaching with three g's or three m's or whatever it is that paul requires <laughs> let's pray and then we'll look at uh, chapter six father god thank you for your word today we thank you that uh, your word is living and active and it cuts us to the heart and often we have areas in our lives that we haven't thought about or we uh, assume our stance and we haven't really thought too deeply about how we're affected by your word and how you've called us uh, to godliness and holiness in the midst of this age. When there's so much on offer in the good life in this age, what does it mean to live a life for you that is sweet and rich and deep and ready for the age to come? Uh, Lord, we pray that you'll help us as we read your word. We cannot understand your word without you adding your understanding by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read chapter 6 of... Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians. I actually have Jackie's Bible and she asked me this morning, did I have her Bible? And that's always a good sign, you know, next morning. You know. It looks pretty well thumbed as well. So Ezekiel looks a bit unread, but that's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 6. Here's God's word. 
If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honour God with your bodies. The good life in this age. You'd have to say that the primary symbol in the Western world that the good, of the good life is that you are your own. You are your own person. The traditional world of other generations and the traditional world that still occupies much of the world outside the West today says you're not your own. You belong to a community, you belong to a family, you belong to a history, you belong to all sorts of networks that determine who you are and what you should do. 500 years ago, if you were someone who was a Christian and you decided you no longer wanted to be a Christian, uh, you wouldn't have a welcoming, receiving community of secular uh, people to welcome you in. You'd probably live on the edge of a town and you'd be thought of as a crazy person because the water you swam in was centred around the church in the centre of the town. It was centred around the seasons that were marked off by holy days. You swam in that water. You did not swim in your own water and do your own thing. And if I were to run a Christian Union event at a university these days as an evangelistic event, this is probably the verse that I would not use. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Anyone want to sign up at university? It's a big issue culturally. And it's a big stumbling block as far as the church is concerned, especially around sexuality at the moment if you have not noticed it. In fact, it's almost been said that if the church could just sort this issue around sexuality out, 
be a little bit more liberated on it, it would take a lot of the pressure off us. And I, I know that pressure. I, I feel that pressure in the family setup that I have with various half-brothers and uh, brother, my other brothers. There's uh, so many marriages between my brothers and uh, kids from all different directions and there's two of the six of us are Christian. And one of my half-brothers I was doing, uh, emceeing his wedding uh, a few years ago. He's not Christian, but we're, we're very close. And we sat down at the wedding table. I didn't have to do the wedding, which is great. So if you're a minister and you don't have to do the wedding, it's like, woohoo, you know? You can sit down, have a good meal, have a chat, and just chill out. And we sat at this beautiful table, and opposite was my brother's wife's brother and his husband, right? from South Africa, who got married in 2015 in South Africa, before it was legal here. My wife made the faux pas of saying, where, uh, brother-in-law and brother-in-law, oh, where are your wives? No, no, and Jill, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know them, and we've gotten to know them a bit, and uh, Bayers and Leonard, and Leonard is the younger guy and he's a bit feisty, and he said to me, so what was the first question you ask someone when you sit down at a wedding table? You say, what's your name? So I duly gave my name. Uh, and then the second question someone asks you in this culture is, what do you do? And I said, I'm a used car salesman who sells crack cocaine and fentanyl at schools. Because <laughs> that was a better answer than what I was about to give, right? <laughs> I said, I'm a pastor of a church. You see, and in this culture, it's straight to the chase, right? Because his next question is, can gay people come to your church? And I said, of course gay people can come to my church. But he's not asking that. Underneath that question is, if I come to your church in the way that we are living in a married male-to-male relationship... Do we have full acceptance and celebration of that as part of what your church would be? Could I lead in your church? Could I lead a Bible study? Could I? All those sorts of questions come in, and he didn't ask those because Leonard, or Bayers, was smart enough to see where that might go and changed the conversation. Ironically, changed the conversation to say, I've never lived in a more godless place than Australia. South Africa is much easier to live in uh, because uh, we're sending our daughter to the local Catholic church uh, school to get some morals because this place is a disgrace. I went, preach it, Leonard, you know. <laughs> so you notice the difference. But when you see a verse like that, you were not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. You're swimming against the cultural frame. Now, at the start of this chapter, you have these people have disputes with each other, lawsuits, and they're bringing them before... Leaders of this age. And Paul says, hang on. Haven't you got people who belong to the age to come who've got the wisdom of God to be able to deal with these matters? It's not even that you are slandering each other or have got disputes. It's that you decide to resolve them in ungodly ways through the courts in front of unbelievers. Fancy churches having to go before courts and deal with stuff. I've never seen that situation in the 21st century. (laughs) It's true, isn't it? And then he gets into the second half of the chapter where he quotes what the things they say. And the first thing that they've written to Paul about is, I have the right to do everything or anything. Um, You know, I have the right to do anything. He's quoting them in verse 12. I have the right to do anything. 
And he's not saying that, but they're writing to him because they live in Corinth. And in Corinth, uh, you know, sex wasn't invented at Woodstock, right? It, it wasn't in 1960-something that the idea of sexual immorality came up. Corinth was awash with it. And they were also awash with an idea that the body itself didn't matter that much. Now, at 56, it feels like it doesn't matter as much as it did at 26. But it certainly hurts more. But they'd bought into this idea that what you, you can do what you like with your body because if we're spiritual beings now, that's only the, the, the spiritual bit that matters. The body itself doesn't matter. Now, two, one thing in particular would speak against that, and that would be the resurrection, right? <laughs> the resurrection of Jesus is proof that bodies matter. And that's what Paul says. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? By his, it's verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Not this esoteric idea that somehow you will be raised as a sort of very, you know, like a thin piece of cling film floating around on a cloud playing a harp. The resurrection of Jesus says bodies matter. What you do with your body matters and you will be raised on the last day with a body to answer for what you have done in the body. Yay. <laughs> That's a scary thought. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Bodies are members of Christ himself, says Paul. So how do we get to the situation in our culture where the default is now you are your own, you're free, therefore do what you like with your bodies? Because that's the gospel, right? The gospel of our culture is the opposite of that gospel. And what I want to say to you is it isn't so much that we've got a gospel message to bring to a culture that has no gospel message of its own. See, the good news of 21st century Western world is once I was blind, once I was blind and I thought that I had to follow rules and regulations and stay in the relationship that I'd committed to, but now I can see. Once I was lost in this sort of fundamentalist, sort of crazy, uh, traditional, conservative, Western, you know, ideology, but now I am found. It's a competing gospel. That's what makes it so complex in this world. That's what makes it another gospel. That's what makes it a discipleship issue for us, that you are either being discipled in that direction or you're being discipled in that direction. And the discipleship program over here is incredible. They pump more money into their discipleship program than churches do, don't they? It's amazing. As I told you in Sydney the other day, the discipleship program was everywhere. Whether it was the Ernst and Young statement, we want a world full of pride, or, quite graphically, the painting or the mural on the side of a wall down in Bridge Street in the centre of Sydney of a guy in bondage gear with a teddy bear head on, 20 foot high on the side of a wall. That's the discipleship program. You come out of your church and it's got the Ten Commandments on the remember those days, and you walk out to the commands of the culture written on the walls. Why? How did we get to that stage? Now, there's a book by a guy called Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And I'm going to read this statement that he wrote, and I'm going to explain it, because it's not the kind of statement you sort of chat about 
over breakfast with your kids before they go to school because it's a bit difficult, <laughs> right? He's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism and the Road to Sexual Revolution. And he says this, the intuitive moral structure of our modern social imaginary prioritises victimhood, sees selfhood in psychological terms, regards traditional sexual codes as oppressive and life-denying, and places a premium on the individual's right to define his or her own existence. Now, what he's meaning by that, when he says the intuitive moral structure of our modern social imaginary, I mean, I use that term all the time, don't you? Um, <laughs> He's saying the water we swim in. The social imaginary is what can you conceive in our culture that's possible to live like? What is the default setting? What is the reflex move when you get up in the morning, when you watch TV? What, what is it saying to you? And it, what it is saying to us is this, that it prioritises victimhood. It says that if someone is telling you that you can't do something, then that is oppressive. Now, I want to be very careful because I know that the church has created victims in many areas of life. There's some blowback and payback going on. We've got to be very careful about that. And we see that with the National Redress Scheme. And it also complicates matters when we talk about sexuality in the church in the West at the moment because fingers are being pointed back. The next term is interesting. It sees selfhood in psychological terms. Now, I want to explain that to you because I think this is absolutely critical when it comes to the issue that's vexing us at the moment, the transgender issue. My wife is a clinical psychologist and she's noticed this as well, that your selfhood, who you truly are, is no longer, and this is where Paul was dealing with this as well, is no longer your physiology. It's your psychology. So, so here's your physiology over here, and here's your psychology over here. And 50 years ago, if you went to see a psychiatrist because you felt that you were in the wrong body, the physiology, and the psychology didn't line up with the physiology, the role generally was to try and shift your psychology, your inner self, to align with your physiology that your true self was here and somehow you had a dysphoria or some sort of, uh, some sort of psychological issue that was stopping you seeing reality. That has been completely switched. So that who you are here, I keep doing that, um, <laughs> that hurt. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a lot of padding around those rooms. Who you are here, I see myself as a 26-year-old Olympic athlete, but that's not true either. <laughs> the trick now is to move this to line with the psychology. And you're creating victims if you say otherwise. You see the complexity of that. So people say, well, why can't Christians just deal with it? Because we believe that you're a holistic person that Christ's body was raised, as Paul says here, and you too will be raised, and you aren't a compartmentalised thing that somehow at the start of your life the lid got screwed off and the wrong gender was poured in. And the, you know, that's not how it works. Now, that is a huge issue in our culture because what it's saying is that I will determine my true identity despite biology. And you cannot, it's very hard to go against that. 
It also regards traditional sexual codes as oppressive and life-denying. Now, this didn't happen overnight. This is 200 years of French philosophy, basically, that Rousseau said, man is born free, but everywhere finds himself in what? Chains. And what he meant by that was, fresh from the womb, everyone's an Adam and Eve who could just flourish how they wished, but family and religion and the city and those things have bound you, especially traditional family and traditional religion are the binding agents in our lives. He says it places a premium on the individual's right to define his or her own existence. That is not something that has been through time immemorial. It's a Western thing. I get into enough Ubers to go to enough airports with young Muslim drivers who say, what's with the West? Why is everyone so anxious about everything? They don't do community. No one believes in God. Tell me about Jesus. You know, it's like, that's what happens. I've got 10 minutes, but let's circle the block a bit and we'll get to the Trinity, you know? <laughs> now, Carl Truman's book is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. But last night I said that the city, the Corinth that's all glitzy, is a facade. Because behind it, we have a tsunami wave of broken people. We do. It should be the rise and failure of the modern self. But that failure has been propped up by a lot of government money with psychologists and psychiatrists. And I say it, my wife doesn't like me saying because she says I'm being cheeky. You can say what you like about the sexual revolution, but it's built us a great house in Perth because my wife's business is booked out. <laughs> because everyone is trying to live the intuitive moral structure of our modern social imaginary. And it takes extreme expressions. Amanda Herring is a young secular Jewish woman in the United States who, after the Supreme Court of the United States struck down Roe versus Wade, stood outside the court with not yet a human written on her stomach one day before she was due to give birth. Now, actually, it was actually very challenging for her cohort because they didn't even really believe that. They believed it was a human. But she said, and she articulated it very well, until tomorrow, I'm an autonomous person. I have the right to do what I wish. No one can say otherwise. It's very challenging. Not yet a human. Until we decide so. Huge issue in our culture. And probably a long way from where I... Remember the debate about abortion issues in the 70s growing up, I think. Massive issue. But then you get the flip side to many of the issues in our culture today. Andrew Tate, you know you're getting old when you have to ask your 15-year-old son, have you ever heard of a guy called Andrew Tate? Yeah, Dad. Does anyone know who Andrew Tate is? Well, he's in prison in Romania at the moment for ordering a pizza and it was delivered by Greta Thunberg. It wasn't, but there's a whole story about that. Andrew Tate has hundreds of millions of followers on social media, hundreds of thousands of school kids, school men, boys, in Australia follow him in the best schools around the country where they are training you to be good young gentlemen. And he comes out with lines like, 
If she's a six, she gets a glass of water. If she's a nine, she'll get dinner. Misogyny, flashy cars, expensive stuff. You read some of the stuff and it's sort of kind of funny until you go mine down into it. It's like, he's not even that smart. But he's made a lot of money through pitching a lifestyle to young men and saying, you know what? This culture is making you into victims and I want to show you how to not to be and I want to show you how to take control. I want to show you how you can get what you want. How you can glorify yourself with your body. And interestingly, while we look at the abortion picture and go, it's a very radical progressive perspective, what you get with Andrew Tate is a hyper-conservative, almost right-wing you know, nationalism perspective just coming up. And you think there's a lot of anger in that as well as in that. Our solution is not somehow to go back to 1950. Because I think one of the issues that we have is that Mark Sayers, a Melbourne pastor, says our progressive culture wants the kingdom without the king. Christianity has given such beautiful fruit to the culture. If you've read a book by Glenn Scrivener called The Air We Breathe, it's a beautiful book about how all of the things like justice and mercy and forgiveness that we assume in our culture came from the gospel. They weren't there in pagan Rome. And people are not Christian in a different way to what they would have been not Christian in the first century pagan Roman era because they've, they've breathed the air, the good air of Christianity in. He said, but people want those things without the king. They want the fruit of the gospel without the root of the gospel in a progressive sort of worldview. But the flip side of it is that some people want Christendom without Christ. They want a very conservative way of doing life where everything's locked down, but we don't need Christ in that either. We can't have either of those. We have Jesus as king, as king of the age that has broken in through his death and resurrection. But let me go on and explain a little bit how we've arrived at this point where these, these issues around sexuality and identity have absolutely gripped us and a little bit as to why people may be feeling what they're feeling. Because there's one thing we want to do as Christians. We want to know how our friends think about some of these things. We want to know the people we work with, why they think that way. And even if they don't believe the extremes of it, why do they swim in the water they swim in without understanding truly what it is? This is Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn Jenner was Bruce Jenner, who won the gold medal at the Montreal Olympics for the decathlon in 1976. Man of the year. Hang on, I'll just... Hide those. Um, man of the year. In 2015, 39 years later, the same lifetime, Vanity Fair's woman of the year. The same person was man of the year and woman of the year in the same lifetime. And this was said in Vice magazine. Buy it for the articles. Now, I found this article somewhere. It said... The moon landing, the fall of the Berlin Wall, once in every American generation comes a moment that changes the world forever. For millennials, that moment came last night. Now, there's a generation on for millennials because millennials are hitting 40. That seemed old a while ago, but it's, they're hitting 40. So 
We'll talk about that generation as well. But let me explain a bit. For baby boomer generation, the moon landing was the truth is out there. The truth is out there. To boldly go, split infinitive, where no man has ever gone before. You remember Star Trek. It was the first interracial kiss on American television was between Lieutenant O'Hara and Captain James T. Kirk. You could not have gotten away with it in a sitcom about suburbia. It had to be out there. And you go out there in space not to find out more about aliens, but to find out more about humans. And the moon landing was part of that. We're, we're going to find the truth out there, and that's going to unite us and bring us together, and, and things will be sorted out as, we, as technology helps us find it out there. And that all soured. You think of Vietnam, you think of Nixon and all those things. And my generation was the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was the Cold War. And in 1989, the Berlin Wall was destroyed. There's the Berlin Wall calling. We want its wall back. Berlin. <laughs> I'll keep going. If you're my generation, you remember that as being... The truth is... We'll knock all the walls down. The truth's across here among us. We'll, we'll become post-tribal. We'll become post-national. Does it feel like that's what's happened? It feels like the walls have come back up again. The truth isn't out there and it's not across here. Where's the one location that you can truly depend on? You. If I'm going to look for truth, I'm going to look for it in here. I'm going to mine down to the very depths of myself to see who I am. And if my physiology doesn't line up with my psychology, then we're going to get to work on that. And that's why it seems odd and almost silly to say that a man now presenting as a woman is the same as the moon landing of the fall of the Berlin Wall, but it makes complete sense if you think about where we're looking for meaning. And if I put another generation on this, it feels like as the generations have gotten younger, it's, there's a lot of nihilism out there. Where pff, There's no meaning anywhere. <laughs> I'll do it until it changes and then I'll do something different. It's the young woman standing on the M25 shutting down all the traffic saying, I'm protesting because I don't have a future. And that's how people feel. It feels like that. Now, I'm probably driving us to despair at this point. I'm, not trying to, I'm actually trying to show us that if we're going to be effective Christians in our world and we're going to also realise that we have something to offer our world that's different, then we need to know what's going on culturally. Now, not everyone is feeling that way. It, Bruce Jenner is not the epitome of what's going on for everyone in culture, but it is the extreme example of that. It's saying, yeah, you are your own. You do what you want. You glorify yourself with your body. It's the flip side of 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. But let's, let's dive it in a little further, and I think this is probably for the next generation down. That great American philosopher, poet, Taylor Swift... Um, <laughs> you scoff. You scoff. Do you like Taylor Swift? Oh, love yeah. Taylor. Uh, yes. See, the fact is, she is a great philosopher-poet because she speaks the language of a whole generation. She wouldn't sell the number of albums she did if she wasn't. And last year at the New York University, she gave the commencement address to the university graduates. 
the, one of the wealthiest universities in America, with some of the people who are going on to achieve the highest positions in the land, had Taylor Swift come and say, life is really, really tough. Keep your nose above the waterline and you'll be fine. If you had someone come and say that in 1967 at New York University, they would have said, get out of here. We're going to the stars. And now the feeling is frightened. Maybe we'll get through. And she said this, how do I give advice to this many people about their life choices? How do I give you advice about how you do you? I won't. Scary news, you're on your own now. Cool news is, you're on your own now. For some people, that's cool news. If you've got the legacy money and dad in the big law firm. But if you're falling through the cracks, you're on your own now. Sounds like hell. And the great irony is many people who have all the legacy money feel completely and utterly bereft and alone and do not know where to turn. And there, there's a mental health crisis. Absolute mental health crisis. It's okay for Taylor Swift to say that's good news because she's at the top of the pile on these issues. In a book called You Are Not Your Own by Alan Noble, he says this. If I am my own and belong to myself, then I must define who I am. My parents can name me and the government can issue me a social security number, but only I can decide my identity. The contemporary understanding of humanity decrees that each of us has the freedom and responsibility to define that identity. Do you know the problem in our culture is? The freedom sounds great until the responsibility kicks in. Because if it starts to fall apart, the only person you've got to blame is you. We cannot bear the weight of that. We are not created to bear the weight of that. In fact, that is... Adam and Eve's original sin, isn't it? That they are going to define their own identities and they have the freedom to do so and they cannot bear the weight of that and God will not allow them to bear the weight of that. Because that's what I want to say is if we're thinking about this just simply as a psychological issue, then we are simply thinking in the this age category. But this is a grievous offence against the God of the universe who's created us. We have to start to think in the other age category, the invisible world that we cannot see and how that works. If I am my own and belong to myself, then I must define who I am. I am compelled to do that because no one else will do it for me. And then you get, you are not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. Can you see there might be a little bit of a chink of hope in that actual statement when you think about the tsunami wave that is going to arrive on our doorsteps in about 30 years' time? But here's the challenge to us as a church. The tsunami wave is arriving on the doors of psychologists at the moment, but it hasn't quite arrived on the doors of the church yet. And when it does, it would be terrible if they rock up and say, how do you do you? Oh, just the same way you do you. It's all up to me. How do you do sexuality? 
Well, on the surface, it's all bright and shiny, but we've covered over a lot of stuff. How do you do forgiveness? Well, we go to court with each other. (laughs) If it's not what it says on the tin, they're going to walk away bereft. Because there's nothing here for them either. Isn't that Paul's issue with these people in Corinth? You just look like old Corinth. And even if you don't look like old Corinth, you're trying to. It's too beguiling for you. I think in some sense we've got a bit of time to get our house in order because you can't take out of the bank what you haven't got in. You can't fatten the pig on the way to the market. The next 30 years for God's people is about doubling down on where our identity lies and who we belong to. And it's interesting in verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit in you, whom you have received from God? One commentator says, actually, that's, do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, <laughs> whom you receive from God? It's not just that you're not your own individually. It's corporately. The Holy Spirit is in us as a people. Bustleton Baptist Church is an outpost of the new age to come by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we get to exercise what the new kingdom looks like even while we live in old Bustleton, which doesn't seem too bad given that I ran through it this morning and went, this is pretty good. But there's part of the problem, isn't it? it you, you kind of think if, if, this, if people live the opposite to this, then we're kind of thinking it's going to look like a zombie apocalypse out there. And it doesn't, frustratingly. Where's my zombie apocalypse when I want it? You know, I, everyone's going to leave God behind and it's going to look terrible. Well, it doesn't seem to look terrible all the time. But as I said, it is a little bit of a facade. The session this afternoon, I'm going to flip it a bit and look at some of perhaps the things that we swim in that we aren't so shocked by. (laughs) Now, I work for um, City to City Australia, and Tim Keller has done a great job in cities of dealing with... Because it's often in cities that we see it most, isn't it? But he says this. This is the crunch point. This is where the gospel message is good news to people who have beaten themselves to death looking as deeply inside themselves psychologically as they can and not coming up with the goods. Because, you know, we've read the exam paper before we sat it and we know that it says the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can cure it? Who knows it? Well, God knows the heart. The deeper we go into ourselves, we don't like what we find. Keller says this, The modern self is exceptionally fragile. While having the freedom to define and validate oneself is superficially liberating, it is also exhausting. You and you alone must create and sustain your identity. This has contributed to unprecedented levels of depression and anxiety and never satisfied longings for affirmation. Each of us is trying to get affirmed by someone else who's trying to get affirmed by someone else who's trying to get affirmed by someone else. It's, it's exhausting. And of course, Christians are better than that and came from a much better spot 
so that becoming a Christian was just a little leap into no. <laughs> Verse 9. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Here's what I think. We, we kind of think today, if someone's going to become a Christian, they're coming off, they're becoming a Christian from off a higher bar. Because it's way too hard to think that the Bruce Jenner types are ever going to become Christians. Right? My daughter is at Notre Dame University and at the start of O-Day this year, last year, O-Week, they set up the Christian Union stall right next to the LGBTQI stall. <laughs> you know? And she's doing arts. And uh, there's actually someone in her class who's a very crunchy kind of Christian guy who's read my book and he makes a point in class all the time of saying, her dad wrote a book about it. And she's going... <laughs> If you want to see cancel culture in real time, my daughter is sort of, <laughs> what's this book you're dad? Hey, you know, it's like, burn it. But we like to think that the person who's going to become a Christian on a university campus is the kind of nerdy guy who's into chess and gaming and is a bit lonely. If you're here today, I'm sorry for your loss. Um, impending losses, um, who is sort of almost there and is a little bit moral and grown up in a sheltered environment and he's a bit friendless and he comes along to Christian Union and makes friends and somewhere along the line he becomes a Christian. The low-hanging fruit. If you think that's how God operates, you've got to get a bigger ladder and get it further up the tree. Because <laughs> the next leader of Christian Union could be at the LGBTQI stall now. Because that is what some of you were. That's the gospel. Otherwise, that's not the gospel. That's moralism. Just edge yourself along to being tidier. We don't believe that. We don't believe that. We believe you were washed. You were sanctified, set apart. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, which took you from the old age into the age to come. That's you. <laughs> That's us. That's why when we struggle with sin, the person who's... If you are struggling with sin today, in any of these areas or any area... The person least shocked by your sin will be the person who's the most godly person you know. The person most shocked will be the moralists. Okay? If you are struggling with sin, find the godliest person in this building you know and go and share with them and ask them to pray for you that you would walk in line with the Spirit of God. And they won't be shocked because they know that's what some of us were like and they might have been like it themselves. Yeah? if that makes sense. I'm going to give us a chance in a minute to ask some questions. I don't know what time this session finishes. Can you give me a ballpark? Quarter two, is it? Or is it now? Nowish? I'll go five minutes. See, so you're not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. 
But the hope is, isn't it? Do you not know that your bodies or your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Everything we have in God is a gift. None of it is our effort. And because everything has come from God for us in Christ, our social imaginary in this place is we are not our own. See, the water we swim in out in the world, ironically, dries us out. And you come here on Sunday and you feel like a consumer at times and you feel like you're not worthy at times and you feel like I'm just being swamped. But as you come in the doors, a different social imaginary exists here. This is an outpost of God's kingdom. You're bought at a price. You share the cup and the bread to remind yourselves of that. You come here to a different social imaginary where it just hits different. And non-Christians come into that kind of social imaginary. Believe me, it hits different for them as well. You think they don't notice it. I'm going to tell you a story about that in the next session, or in the last session. You think people don't notice the difference, but be encouraged, they do. We were talking about parkrun this morning with someone. Who was parkrun, everyone gets together, it's a beautiful social imaginary. It's like church without Jesus. But it's without Jesus. And so if something goes wrong at parkrun, you never turn up again. There's no forgiveness there. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. And honour God with this body. Because the cultural refugees will wash up on our shores at some stage. This cannot keep going. It's a facade. Let's be ready to be the kind of people that God's called us to be when people do turn up so that they wouldn't walk away going, you're just like everyone else. That we're different in here. The Spirit of God has made us different and we get to be different in our bodies. And one day, whether you feel like this doesn't line up with this anyway, and to, to some degree that's all of us, right? The resurrection of Jesus that is mentioned there, he will raise us also so that everything will be perfectly aligned. That's the day we're hoping for. Amen? Amen. Amen. Time for one or two quick questions and I'll promise I'll be quick answers if people want or we can save them for this afternoon. One question. Paul, Ooh. does it start with an M and a G and a... Uh. Yes. That at least willing to listen, right? Yeah. What does that, what sort of shape does the gospel look to a homosexual couple that, that you meet or comes into the church? Yeah. Can you repeat the question? Yeah, so the question was, how would you articulate the gospel to a homosexual? If Bayers and Leonard did come to my church and they say, tell us what you actually believe about the go- this message you have, where would you start? How, how would you articulate it? Not necessarily in a way that they would 
sign-ups, you know, we're all in and they're sort of praising Jesus and leading worship in a year's time, but that they would go, I can see why you think that and that makes sense, right? Because that's at the moment, it, it, it feels like there's no common points, right? It was interesting, Rory preached at Bayswater Providence last week and I was listening to a sermon thinking, I wonder if he's going to go there, that question, his next point, and he did. But the thing that he said from Colossians 1, which I think is a great place to start, is that there are only two realities in the world. There's created stuff and there's a creator. They're not merged, though Jesus, everything is being made through Jesus, is for him and in him. And Jesus was before all of that happened as the second person of the Trinity before his incarnation, God the Son. In relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And he said, he starts that, he starts with relationship is at the foundation stone. The relationship of love is at the foundation of all reality because it existed before anything else in creation, any creation existed. An uncreated relationship of love existed. So relationships are deeply important to humans and deeply reflective of who God is. And all human relationships reflect it in some little way, which is, the, the question is, these people love each other, what is the issue? Right? You have to start with eternal relationship in God, I think, and then value that someone values relationship because they're, we're created to value relationship. But if Augustine talks about our disordered loves, right, that we take a created thing, relationships between humans as a created thing, and we elevate that to a high, you know, above the God question. I think it's the hardest question, because you're not asking it into a neutral space at the moment. You're asking it against 50 or 60 years of church that hasn't engaged well with the gay community and hasn't figured out how to. Right? And why can't you just drop that issue and we'll all get along? And we're, and we're not. And so I think you do a lot of listening and say, what are, the common desire is for good relationships, but how you channel that through who God is and how God views relationships is where you're going to... There's, there's a point where you can't write it into the small print. But the other thing you need to say is that 21st century and the end of the 20th century the cash value of sexuality in relationships was boosted through the roof in a way that it probably wasn't through the rest of history in a certain way. That community was much more important, like general community, and other things were valued much higher. Honour was valued much higher than sexuality in some cultures. And so you had to almost say that God asks everyone to write their name on a cheque if you're coming to Jesus, and he gets to fill in the amount. So what that amount is for me looks different to what it might be for someone else, but they go, that doesn't cost that much, and I go, you don't know me. That costs a lot. The culture's telling us that sex is everything, and we need to dial that down a little bit. Most gay people who are living in relationships are not ready to march as ideologues down the street. They just want to live a quiet life, right? That's, that's the reality. And they have their own pressures and 
issues as well, just like everyone else, because they're just humans. So you've got to, the, the thing I think what we've got to do, if you've got a big picture of God, humans aren't small. If, if you, don't have, you don't despise humans because they're too small mm. and you don't fear them because they're too big. If God is huge, humans are just the right size. They're human-sized. And you've got to come to each of those people as not someone who's gay or trans or even rich. <laughs> There's our blind spot, right? And we come and say, they're a human made in the image of God and they have a dis... Like all of us have disordered loves where that's been placed above. So that's a long way of answering a question. (laughs) Because I don't think there's an easy answer at the moment. The church is sitting in a space where it's got to just wait and see how this goes and just be very careful, speak the truth in love, even if that's not seen as love. But we don't have to say everything all of the time. And we probably need to ask more questions than provide answers in this space at the moment. We need to start, I say carefully, undermining assumptions that people have about us, but also about ask them their assumptions about themselves and why. For every answer that Jesus gave in the New Testament, he asked a bucket load of questions. <laughs> and we're very good in our apologetics of going, hang on a minute, I've got the list here. You know, and we haven't listened. And that's not to say we... say so I think the church is for Christians. Right? I think we come here to worship the living God, and if non-Christians are in the church building, and if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you get to see how this works, this thing. And I think when we come together, we reorient ourselves towards what is true and right, and that gives us an opportunity to not be scared, but also not to have to feel like we have to say everything all the time. It's, I think we're sitting in a space we haven't figured out what the solution to that is yet, to be honest. That's my take on it. And if people are going to call you all the names of the day because you... hey. We follow a crucified saviour, so you're just going to have to figure that one out. But it's complex. Happy to have those conversations over lunch, tea. Thanks for bringing it up and throwing me a hospital pass. You know. um, but I am happy to have those conversations. And if that's something you're struggling with, I'm around for the day, most of it, to, to chat. So I'll sit under a tree like an old wise man when the stroke is working. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I've gone on. I'm sorry. Yeah.